who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast. Took a few months off, although I recorded a bunch of interviews since November, election season. And we are now back. There'll be a whole bunch of new authors that we're talking to, authors from a wide variety of backgrounds over the next few months. Um, But you will notice a decided uh, specificity in what we talk about. The election has um, changed a lot of things, particularly for writers and people in the arts. And um, a lot of what we are going to be talking about is going to focus on that, uh, particularly our role in the, today's political climate. Uh, as for me, there are some changes in the wind. The biggest one, I guess there's two big ones. Um, is that in a few months, I'll be starting a new job out at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, where I'll be the editor and director of the ETC Press, which is one of two university presses at Carnegie Mellon. And we got a lot of cool things that are coming down the pike with that. Um, and I'm sure that will come out over the next several months. Uh, the second is that the Geeky Press has been really active. Um, we have... Our first literary magazine has closed. Um, Who's Your Lit, Volume 1, Number 1, will be out in mid-May. I think May 19th is our release. Uh, we had about 75 or 80 submissions. I think we took like 24, 25, so about a 33% acceptance rate. It was great. Um, had a great time reading through everything. And we've already opened up submissions for our fall, Volume 1, Number 2 of Who's Your Lit. So you can go to www.thegeekypress.com. Uh, 
and click on the uh, Who's Your Lit tab um, and see our call for proposals. Um, we really just wanted to celebrate the best writing by Hoosiers about Indiana, um, anybody that has a connection to the state. So that's been great. We're also uh, neck deep in Dear America, which is our second anthology book. Um, this one is about race in America. So again, we've had about 75 or 80 submissions so far. We're going to start going through those Um our submissions are open through July, and we'll publish that book in the fall. So if you're interested, you can um, check out that uh, call for proposal as well. We're really excited. Um, those two things are uh, far outseated, uh, exceeded, outseated, exceeded our expectations. So we're really excited to be into the publishing world and to really um, be pushing forward with that. In terms of uh, us, like it's so. This podcast uh, took a little break as I was um, dealing with some of my own shit. So the biggest thing is that after eight and a half years of sobriety, I had started drinking again a few months back. And um, 72 days ago from today, uh, I went back into AA and stopped drinking. So I took a little time away from recording these things because I needed to do that. But along the way, I've also been working on um, my Appalachia book which is um, really far more timely than I think I knew at the time it could be. So uh, I finished up a draft. Actually, right before I started recording today, I read some notes, so there's some rewriting that I have to do. But I'm within a couple weeks of being done with that draft, which is the story of my family who founded one of the poorest parts of this country. Um, and I struggled for a really long time to come up with a narrative. I, about six years I worked on this. Um, but I couldn't really tie the narrative together. And um, what helped me do that was the election of Donald Trump which was unexpected in many ways. Um, but the night that it happened, as my wife was sort of going through uh, an existential crisis on the couch, um, I was thinking like, oh, this is... The, the election, while it was surprising, did not surprise me. Um, and I began to understand that the need to tell the story of Appalachia was really more pronounced than I thought. And around that time, uh, Hillbilly Elegy had come out by J.D. Vance. Um, J.D. grew up about 20, 25 minutes from where I did. Middletown is is not that far away from Loveland. Um, and his book is very different than our, my book. Um, but you can see the success of that really is something that is uh, sort of tapping into the zeitgeist up today. So I bring all that up because the focus of this podcast over the next several months is going to be about the importance of voice and self and writing. And all these writers that I've talked to um, sort of unabashedly talked about politics and what our place was. And today's interview is with Matt Mullins, who, like me, is a middle-aged white writer um, who's suddenly faced with the reality that... Um, we have a responsibility to begin to try to tell stories that are meaningful and matter about the kinds of people that um, the world, the country seems to not understand. Um, 
and to tell those stories uh, sort of full-throated, right? Like uh, looking at all the different aspects of um, this sort of rural white um, person that seems to so perplex the country because that is who we are, right? So losing the ability, not the ability, losing um, a little bit of autonomy, right? Like like as a, a guy, middle-aged white guy who's from Appalachia, who has an accent like me, um, I feel like I have a responsibility to go try to tell stories to help illuminate part of the country that people don't seem to understand. And this has been a thing. It is why I wrote my book, but it became much more pronounced to me when I realized like, oh shit, like people don't really get this. Um, and so if we're ever going to have meaningful dialogues that don't involve people on one side yelling about how stupid people are and people on the other side yelling about um, how disrespectful people are, there needs to be a way to tell stories that say, okay, like maybe both of these sides aren't right. And that's a really interesting line to walk, right? Particularly as someone who, um, you know, I think something like 65 or whatever percent of white men voted for Trump, right? And, and I, in this election, was part of, not part of that group. And so, in some ways, I don't understand it because I, you know, sort of fall on a different side of things. But in another way, I do because I'm from there. So today's discussion with Matt, we spend a lot of time talking about politics and writing and, and what our responsibility is. And, and when you're a writer in a time of political strife, if you fall on a side where you're not part of the dominant political culture, like what is your role as a writer? And Matt and I came to Ball State together in the same year. So we've been here for uh, in Indiana for seven years together. And um, it was really the beginning of what you will see is going to be four or five conversations that take on this topic. So without further ado, I bring you today's interview with Matt Mullins. So, you and I came to Ball State at the same time, yeah? Yes. We were at the same... 2009. Yeah, and we did that weird project together. Yes. Where we... Yeah, the... Um, what was it called? The Message, I yeah. think it was called. Where we recut uh-huh. the ethnography yep. videos that were done out of Kansas, or Kansas State. Yep. Um, which was... That was, like, my first introduction to you and, uh-huh. and, and what you do, Uh and so, you, but and you do weird writing shit like that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that also, yeah. So, like, what? Tell, like, what do you do? Like, what when you think of yourself as a writer? Like, what's the box? Yeah, because um, I know you as doing like the the fucking visual poetry, like yeah. the interactive digital poetry yeah. and the weird fucking yeah. the message. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It um, it's hard to say what the box is. I'll, I'll go back to the beginning when I when I first became interested in writing, the, the first thing that brought me to the arts, I would guess, you can call it, would be music. I started teaching myself how to play the guitar when I was about 12 years old, and that led to forays into songwriting. And I was in bands in high school and such, and started writing my own songs, and so we were playing some original material here and there. And then in college, my father used to 
be a reporter for the Detroit Times, which existed before the news and the free press, and then eventually went out of business in, I, I believe, the early 60s. From there, he went on to become uh, head of public relations for Chrysler Corporation. But my dad's journalistic past, I'd always kind of romanticized it. And initially, I wanted to be a reporter. So I had some leanings toward writing music and the idea of journalism. And then I went to, after I graduated high school, I went to Michigan State and I was a communications slash journalism major. Now, were you, were you like an only child? Kind of. I have three older sisters, the youngest one of whom is 10 years older than I am. So I had oh, three so you sisters who were up. born in a row. Yeah. <laughs> and then, surprise, there I was 10 years later. And, and so it's like there was one family unit, and then along comes Matt 10 yeah. years later, the only boy. Uh, unexpected. Yeah. You know, are, like they, are they artistic? Not really, no. They're, my sister, my eldest sister, Jana, is somewhat artistic. She works in, in philanthropy and has always had kind of a creative side to her. But for the most part, no, there's no other musicians or writers or, or anything. Mom like and dad, there. what does your mom do? Um, my mom was pretty much a homemaker. Yeah. You know, they were married in the 50s. So they did that thing. 40s, early 50s. They yeah. did the thing that we are right now. My <laughs> sisters were children of the 60s. Yeah. You know, and then um, I, I came along, and everything was kind of different because yeah. I was the only boy. And by the time I was, and it's a whole different. Eight, how old are you? I'm going to be fifty. Fifty. <laughs> so you're gen, like they're like you're Gen X. Like you're yeah. actually a whole different. Yeah. Like you come of age in a whole different yeah. thing. And what's your dad do? Well, he's passed away, but he was um, he was head of public relations for Chrysler Corporation oh, right. for quite some time. And then after that, he had a consulting firm, Mullins Enterprises, where he worked with Toyota mostly. Yeah. So you are an odd duck. What's that? In the family. You're like the oh, yeah, odd duck. Yeah. And politically as well as You come from a conservative. Christian, conservative, well, Catholic. Yeah. My family's Irish Roman. You have Catholic. to make that differentiation yes, today. I do. <laughs> well, for example, when I went to Catholic school, we were taught evolution. Yeah. And we weren't taught that science and religion were mutually exclusive. Right. The Pope has said as much. And but but Catholicism has seemed to veer toward the right somewhat since I mean there used to be liberation theology and yeah. Catholics were very much into social justice and things yeah. like that and that seems to have faded a little bit as they get more and more concerned about the abortion issue. Yeah, but is that uh, well I think that's just America because the Pope seems on board with evolution and yeah. you know like he seems I'm not Catholic I'm not of that. Religious. Yeah, he's. he's so I don't a, pay a lot of attention, but I find him to be the most interesting pope in a long time. Less concerned about dogma and more concerned about what it means to be a true Christian. That's what I mean. Like he seems less yeah. like, yeah. hey, let's get involved. I mean, he came out basically in this last election and was like, don't elect this bozo <laughs> to which we just elected. Uh, yeah, wall builders are not good. <laughs> right. Essentially, what he said. Right. Um, but so all that is in the mix. Yeah. As, as I'm growing up, and but I got to think they're a little bit more relaxed by the time you like. They were very relaxed, and to my parents' credit, their attitude toward things socially and politically and all that, I was never forced into any kind of conservative ideology. My parents were very much like, you believe what you want to believe, here's how our family operates. There was a great deal of tolerance in my family, as far as I could tell, which, yeah. as I become older, I, the republicanism of it surprises me because it didn't really seem evident to yeah. me as a kid. I've had this discussion with so many people, like the Republican of my, I'm from Appalachia, like, so I, you know, I was in the belly of the, I literally grew up in the place that the whole country is now talking about. Yeah. 
But it was, you didn't talk about your religion. You didn't, like, it was a very, I don't know if tolerant is the right word, but, like, it was not as overtly... Political. Yeah. Politics were a little more personal. Yeah, and and it was absolutely not part of your religion. Like, that. those two things were not, they yeah. were separate. Yeah. Um, they merged now in an interesting yeah. way. Yeah, in, in ways that confuse me. Like, I, I tell people, like, I have a hard time even explaining what's happening because it's the antithesis of everything that I knew. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the thing I always feared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The morning of the, the post-election morning, I wrote this long screed that maybe that I kept to myself. I was about to email it to a bunch of people, and I just I took my finger away from the send button and said, yeah. "No, man, this is something for you. Yeah. This is you working out what's going on." I've done that too. You don't need that. And I kind of feel like at some point, like what, what, no matter what side we voted on, like the white guys need to just do some listening right now. Like I think we write some stuff and keep it in our journal. <laughs> I was thinking that very thing on the way in that you know I am not representative of the white patriarchal conservative male, and to a degree, I feel a need to make up for the historical, you know, inequities and, I don't know, maybe we could call it downright evil, but at the very least it's misguided judgment that the white man has perpetuated upon this planet. Right. I mean, it's not like all white guys are, are we allowed to curse in this? Oh, yeah, yeah, So it's not like all white men are assholes. Right. It's not that. It's that many of us are not. Many of us are compassionate, logical, intelligent, reasonable human beings. Yet I kind of feel like, the white man's getting pounded on these days, and yeah. perhaps deservedly so to a degree, but there are those of us who are not that way. Right. But I feel like I had to... We, I, so I do these Jeffersonian dinners where I bring artists together, and we just had one last night, yeah. and, and several of the folks said, like, what do we do? It's all They're all liberal, right? They're all like, what do we do? And I said, I actually don't think this is anything you can do. Mm-hmm. I think this is a thing that people like me... Like, I'm from there. Like, I think I have to go back. I have to... I have to re... So connect to that world. Like you can't. Everybody can't go running in there and being like, "Okay, what did we miss?" Because that's fucked up. That's fucked up. But it's not going to make things better. Yeah. Um, so when I say like, I think it's time for like white dudes to listen a little bit. Like that to me, that's what it is. Like I need not. I need to go back to where I'm from and model this stuff, right? Like because there's a, there's a hopelessness there. Yeah. Um, it's time for the white dudes who can listen to listen. That's what I mean. Yeah. And I think to listen to the people that are the the ones, the 64% of the white dudes that voted for the wrong guy, yeah. right? Like, because yeah. there's an anger. And it's an anger that is, I think, not dissimilar from... The anger on the left. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's... But it's just, it is a rage that comes with hatred that bad things happen. Um, well, it, attached to that on the periphery. I mean, yeah. there are all these people who wanted to flush the toilet. Right. But then there are all the baggage and tentacles that are attached yeah. to that right which, as we see the abandonization and Breitbartization of the truth right but anyway let's well, let, right. me, let me get but back that's, to my... so but that's so but that sort of all shapes that I mean not that but that yeah. you're in you sort of grow up yeah. um, you're given a little bit more freedom it's a different time you go to college you think you're gonna be a journalist and realize that's a bad fucking idea yeah. Well, what happened was, well, meanwhile, so before that, I, you know, I have three aunts that are nuns. I went to all-boys Catholic boarding school. I got thrown out for being me, essentially, right at the very end, for going to senior skip day, Tiger ball game. And all this was the subject of a screenplay I just finished writing called Genuflake Gentlemen while I was on sabbatical. But after I graduated high school, I, I romanticized my father's past and think, I'm going to be a journalist. 
I like the idea of the truth. I understand the power of language. All those things are really important to me. And I also always kind of idolize my father. And then I'm a, I'm a journalism communication major, journalism minor, and as part of this curriculum, I had to take an intro to creative writing course. So there it is. Yeah. I take the intro to creative writing. Meanwhile, I'm a kind of a rock and roll kid. You know, I'd been in bands in high school. I read No One Here Gets Out Alive, but Morrison's biography. Right. I read Hammer of the Gods. I read about Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Listening to Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. You're one of those dudes that think this Dylan thing was a good idea. Yeah, I, I don't. I got, I got mixed feelings about that, but I don't have the same issues other people have. With it. I think he's a brilliant songwriter. Yeah. Does he deserve a Nobel Prize? I, what is the Nobel Prize? I right. guess that becomes the question. Right. But I take this creative writing class, and that just kind of blew the doors off for me. I just was was like, this is it. Yeah. This is what I want to do. I'd already been writing songs. Then I, you know, then you're 19, you know, you're romanticizing right. everything. You start reading Charles Bukowski. Right. You're writing bad poems right. and, you know, mediocre short stories. But I kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And that, that fucking college emo shit is pain. Do you still have yours? <laughs> yeah. I still pull them out and read mine. I'm like, what the? <laughs> like, this is so bad. Yeah. Like, everything I wrote was like, Desolate hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Or overly saccharine, or, you know. I had none of that. Like, yeah. everything, mine, like, everybody died in every one of mine, or, like, you know, just. I was trying to get experimental with a lot of things, and, and stretching, and, you know, E.E. E. Cummings, the way he was playing with line breaks was a big yeah. thing for me. So poetry's a thing that you gravitate to. That and fiction, initially. Yeah. Right, and, and um, I had very encouraging teachers, because I know I was not very good yeah. at, to start, and, and they... You have a lot of respect for the teachers now. Now that you're doing it, yeah. right? Like, well, a it's, lot it's of something I've modeled because even I've actually got this in my comments from in my emails from students. But they, they say he finds something constructive to say about anything, no matter if it's the worst piece of garbage we've ever seen. And that throws me back to you know, well, when I was writing the worst piece of garbage anyone had ever seen, I had an instructor who said to me, "There's the diamond in the rough in there. Look at that thing. Follow yeah. that. You know, tease that out and read this." Yeah, you know, and then you'd read other people's, read professional writer stuff, right. and you'd kind of compare that to your own, and you the light bulb would begin to go yeah. on where you realize how far you'd have to go. Did you ever do the thing? I used to sit in bars and I would write, I, I handwrite Gatsby. I never handwrote other people's work. It was that was the most. I learned more I've about writing. Doing that, yeah, because I, I wasn't a creative like I was. A, I was a comm study, and then I did journalism. Yeah. So like mine has sort of been around theater and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I would sit in bars and just fucking write Fitzgerald. Like, Fitzgerald just did it for me. Like, I don't know why. What but do you like, think that taught you? There is a language, a voice that I have that is very much like the jazz age. Okay. You know, like, when I, when I really find, when the writing is really happening, mm -hmm. it is sort of that, like, it's the narrator from Gatsby, right? Okay. Like, that's sort of, that's... What it, you know, because I read like I, you know, I was a bit, I, I loved Thompson and I loved um, David Foster Wallace and yeah. um, I love Nathaniel Hawthorne. Like, I'm yeah, like yeah. the only twice told tale, yeah. Like, I, I feel like there's like two of us that are like, <laughs> oh my god, I have like his collected works yeah, and I read them. Yeah. And he had that same sort of quality where it was sort of this author voice coming into the narrative, sort of explaining the things that were happening without it being just flat summary, like, mm -hmm. it just built these big contexts, to, and that's. You know, Thompson was the same way. Foster Wallace, the footnotes, that's what they all are. They sort of all have that thing in common. So, yeah. like, doing that, yeah. 
I don't know. Like, I don't know if it made my writing any better because I'm not a very good writer, but, like, <laughs> that was my learning mode. It occurs to me now that that's totally analogous to what musicians do in terms of woodshedding. You know, I mean, what I used to do is I would sit down with the record player, okay, and, you know, drop the needle and right, hear the riff and play the riff and then pick up the needle and bring it right. back and hear the riff and play the riff. So it's, it's really a similar thing. You're kind of intuiting that person's voice and their yeah. style and then and taking it and ideally you morph it into, it has to come through you yeah. anyway. So Because it, it's that finding that voice, right? And like I'm assuming when you're in that creative writing class and you do that for the first time, there's that electric shock of voice where you feel exactly. like this is me for the first time yeah. emerging. So then how do you, how do you then like grow that? Yeah. Like how do you, how did you do it? Well, I... <laughs> Went home and had that interesting conversation with my parents about how I wanted Switching to major, my yeah. major to creative writing. And to their credit, and I think my dad... They'd given up already. You're the well, my dad, one. in a way, I think, wished he'd maybe taken a more bohemian yeah. path. I know my mom did. Yeah. And like, she loved reading, yeah. but she never wrote. Yeah. So when I said that to them, they were absolutely supportive. Yeah. There, there wasn't a second of hesitation. And what year was this? Well, let's see, I graduated high school in 1985, and so this would have been about 1987. So you're right at the end of the Reagan Revolution, and you're like, rock and roll, fiction, poetry, and I'm assuming you're out on the edge of the social, like, you're out on the left. Yep. Just starting to kind of get out of the left, I was just starting to come into my politics, because, like I said, although my family was relatively conservative Catholic, you know, three ants that are nuns, blah, blah, blah. Um, I actually considered the priesthood even when I was in eighth So did I. Then the puberty thing hit. Yeah. And the whole not being able to get married. Yeah. So if, if, It's not if, married. If, if Catholic priests... It wasn't married. Well, uh, <laughs> if, if Catholic priests would have been allowed to be married, yeah. I may have gone down that yeah. path. Because I've always had a really strong spiritual streak. It's just dogma that I can't abide. Yeah, which makes it difficult to be a... <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, when I was just out of college, I went and thought about it. Mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't over... Like, I'm not, you know... I've basically been an atheist. atheist right? I've been an atheist forever. Yeah. But there was something about... I'm drawn to stories, right? Like, and, like, stories for good. It was one of those where I'm like, ah, maybe there's something in there. Which I then quickly realized, like, yeah. ah, they do a lot of shit that I'm not going to really yeah. be down with. Yeah. I mean, that's why I kind of remain agnostic because I, I just there's much beyond my understanding that yeah. I cannot say neither here nor there what's up. But the, one of the things that I thought about, you know, I mean, the idea of taking, of using the sermon to deliver compassionate humanist messages right. through the lens of what their religion is about seemed to me kind of like how I would have approached yes. it. Yes, as opposed to sinners of the hands of the angry God, yeah. you're like scaring the shit out of them <laughs> to do like spiders <laughs> over the fire. <laughs> So, do you begin to, this is like, this is the conversation that I was having last night, like, did you begin to, like, infuse that worldview into your writing? Like, did you begin to see the writing and the art and the things that you did as a way to express? I started writing, so the screenplay that I just finished is called Genuflect Gentlemen, which is quasi-autobiographical, very loosely autobiographical piece of work, and... So I changed my major to creative writing. I'm taking poetry workshops and fiction writing workshops and literature classes, and I'm running through the curriculum, and all this 
I didn't have a very this all boys Catholic boarding school that I went to. Yeah. To be honest with you, the education was total bullshit. It was they were marketing it marketing it as a prep school. Yeah, it was garbage. It was it was like Lord of the Flies, just trying to survive, getting your ass kicked every day. <laughs> Weird Hansy brothers, you know. Yeah. Just just a, so it was not a separate piece. It was not. <laughs> have you read the separate piece by yeah. Jonathan Knowles? It's about a boarding okay, school. Yeah, I need to yeah, read but, that yeah, one but it's not. Like, but uh, yeah, it's the good version of that. Oh, kind. Yeah, yeah, there's I, no I, Hansy this brothers. Is not my reality. <laughs> All at the so, but it was also kind of an us against them thing. Where sure. me and I have the friends I made at that school are still sure. my friends now. Yes. I still see brothers them. in arms. We are. I have no brothers, so yeah. these guys became my my yeah. brothers. So that experience that I had there, I started trying to write that when I was in my undergrad already, like working. I, I got the title for Jenny Flick Gentleman. The first early forays into that were happening. I ended up carrying that on into my MFA and PhD, and I wrote a novella, which in the end. I feel was failed. It was I was just not a good enough storyteller. And then now, okay, I'm almost 50 years old. On my last sabbatical in the fall, you know, I, meanwhile I had gone off into screenwriting and all these other things. And I finally got to the point. Maybe it was distance. Maybe it was understanding of craft. Maybe it was realizing that I could use that environment and its ideas, but I could not use the story. Yeah. I had to tell its own story. I sat down and wrote that thing, and I got to the end of it. And I know it's not perfect, but I got to the end, and I was just. God damn it, I fucking nailed it. That's it. That feels right. I finally told the story the way I wanted to tell it. Yeah. So now I can set it aside. Yeah. But I started working toward that stuff, you know, very early. And after that, it, it you get that first taste of voice, like you were saying. And I've kind of been pursuing that ever since in various ways. I've been looking for it in poetry. I've been looking for it in fiction. I've been looking for it in screenplay. Where does it feel the most... Well, interestingly enough, with these video poems that I've come to, it's kind of odd because I'm a bit of a generalist. You know, lyrics led me to, song lyrics led me to poetry, which was kind of narrative, right. which led me to fiction, which yeah. led me to screenwriting, yeah. which led me to multimedia. And I, I think the place where I, I kind of feel like it all is dovetailing is in the video poems that I'm making lately. Because I, I start with the language, usually, but not always. But I tend to start with the poem. I begin to visualize and think about how to actualize that in a, a filmic way, a cinematic way. And then I sit down and I start to play with shape and contrast and patterns and the breaking of patterns. And I think about it as I make it in kind of a musical poetic way. So it's every, like, it, for it's you, a, it this is like screenwriting, kind of, fiction, poetry, yeah. music, all sort of in it one. Kind of and obviously the thing, you go to the place where the, the story needs to be told, right? Like, you're not mm -hmm. just saying, well, we're just gonna, everything's going to be video poetry from now on. But I find that there is, at least for me, there's one medium that I fear, one sort of style that is the mm -hmm. one that I'm like, home. Like, I can sit down and write a 4,000 word essay. First person narrative about whatever, bringing in sort of, and I can do that, like that's, I can do that in a sitting and have a draft of something that I'm like, once I've sort of thought it through and put the pieces and had the arguments with people so I know what I want to say. Yeah. Books are, those are hard, like it's hard because I, all the things that sort of, the tentacles that go outside of the story, like I have a hard time parsing them out because... Yeah. I understand why David Foster Wallace like struggled, right? It was just yeah. like, fuck it, here's 400 pages of footnotes. Yeah. Um, poetry, I've never got. Yeah. Like, and I've tinkered with green plays a little bit, but they're like plays, right? Like they're very 
talky talky. It depends on how you, I, yeah. I, and that's and that's something I, I tell to my students because when they initially come to it, they want to make it very talky. Right. And I keep saying to them, writing good dialogue. First of all, it's a skill, it's a talent. Some people have a natural affinity for it. Some people don't. The people that don't have to work really hard to get it right. But the main thing I keep coming back to with them is, you know, screenwriting is telling a story in pictures. Right. <laughs> and dialogue is a tool of last resort. Right. You know, and there are writers who obviously go around that, but. But for me, though, to, to get back to the core of what my writing is all about, I think, and maybe this is the recovering Catholic in me, that it's kind of a confessional mode. Yeah. That everything kind of comes out of me trying to figure out my place in the world, which by extension leads to well, what is the world in the first place. Right. So I'm like wrestling with who am I, why am I here, and where am I anyway? And, and how does that spin back onto who am I and why am I right. here? And so I've been... A lot of it's just kind of a, a search for understanding in terms of, I mean, maybe it's like, you know, what does God mean? What does the divine mean? Is, is it there? Is it not? If it is, what is its relationship to us? Are we all it? Are we the molecules in the er god being that takes up the entire universe? And, yeah. You know, I'm, it's just stuff that I'm... Is that what goes through your head when you're trying to parse out writing? No. Okay. What goes through my head when I'm trying to write, when I'm in the write mode, is nothing. Right. It's like this clear stream of light where my body disappears yeah. and the lightning of whatever it is I'm working on comes just right through me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all very, when it's working well, it's, it's very unconscious. And those are the periods of the most generation. That's when all the pages start right. flying. And then afterwards, you kind of sit back and go, okay, what did I just do? Right. You know, and then you look at it and you say, all right, how does that fit into what I'm trying to do? Is that taking me down the wrong direction? Yeah. Do I trash that? You know, does it lead to this other thing? The editing to me is way easier. Mm-hmm. Way easier. Yeah. Like I can, you know, I've, I, I've told my students oftentimes that like you, that you're one of two, you're either a writer or you're an editor. Mm-hmm. Like editing is a, people don't understand the power and skill that a good editor mm-hmm. can and I sort of realized throughout the years, like, ah, fuck, like, that's, that's where I'm, I'm actually really good at that. Uh-huh. I'm really good at going into the mess and going, okay, yeah. here's how, this is what I think you're, not here's how I would do it, but here's what I think you're trying to say, yeah. and here's the pieces, um, and it is, it, it's a little painful to sort of realize that you're better at one thing, right? Like, it's solely right? Like, yeah. god damn it, I want to write, but I'm much better at piecing them together. Yeah. So when you start, do you start with... I want to say a thing. Do you start with a character? Do you start with, like, here's this school, and what does this school mean? Like, what, do you have a thing that you generally start with? Mm-hmm. Just whatever it's, it's is different every time. It's what it, so sometimes the idea will pop into my head, an idea for the theme of the story. You know, um, I want to explore the nature of betrayal and what it means in a relationship where people refuse to be honest with each other. Yeah, you know, that that might pop into my head. Or an image might pop into my head, or a, a character situation might pop yeah. into my head. And then I'll kind of take it from there. Sometimes with the poems, especially with the short ones, it's like someone's beaming shortwave radio, and right. the lines just start happening, and right. I just go sit down and, and write them. With the stories, it's typically I get an idea for a, a concept or a character in a situation, and I tend to follow those. With a screenplay, it's usually the seed of the idea, the premise, and then I sit down and I map the whole thing out. Yeah. Do you map your stories out? No. 
So when I write a short story, it's I have the idea and I kind of work it as I go. Yeah. But with a screenplay, I, I have to create a beat sheet or an outline if you're trying to write a feature because you know you get into page thirty or forty and right. then all of a sudden you're like, where's this going? Yeah. And then once you figure that out, then you might have to think about okay, well everything I set up now <laughs> needs to be changed. Right. And you create this kind of vicious circle. So with this screenplay that I just finished. I think well, it took me my whole sabbatical to write it pretty much, so you know, roughly about five months. And I'd say three of those five months was probably spent making outlines. Yeah. And then the writing itself yeah. actually happened pretty fast. This is what I always tell out. folks. Writing's easy. Writing's actually really ridiculously easy. It's the 97% of shit that goes before it. Now, a big part of that for me, too, is in my head. Yeah. So How long did it take you to realize that that's writing? That, that not doing anything is some is part of the process. It took me quite a while. I mean, maybe in my 30s. Because we have this thing, right? Like, get up every day and put on a tie and yeah. write for five hours. Like, yeah. I, that shit doesn't work for me. Yeah. I, I like that habit when I can have that habit. But I, I know that because for me also, um, being someone who's very interested in poetry and musicality and the sound of language... Yeah. Even when I'm writing fiction, every single sentence matters to me. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, the rhythm of that sentence is off, or the, the construction, yeah. the phrasing's off. How does it go with the one that came before it? And then you're like, meaning and story and all that on top <laughs> of it. You know, here I am, like, haggling over the tone and rhythm of a given sentence yeah. or a given line. My writing so, partner is like that. Well, I like that in terms of flexing those muscles. Yeah. You know, if you're a, a concert cellist, right, you need to play that damn thing every day. Yeah. And if you want that facility with line, you really need to flex that. But what I've found is that I think most of the work of development of the bigger picture of a given piece, that's what happens in my mind mm -hmm. when I'm walking around and thinking about it and musing on it. So what that means is, for me at least, what it took me time to realize is that, okay, ass and chair is good, and yeah. that, that time is good, but you also have to give yourself the time to clear your mind to think about your art. Yeah. Because if, right. we, if we spend all day walking around thinking about politics, right. Or thinking about our relationships, or thinking right. about our jobs. What we're not thinking about is our art. Right. So, one of the challenges for me over the last few years has been: okay, stop thinking about all this other stuff, and spend this next hour musing in your mind over these ideas. Mm -hmm. Get that notebook out, jot some notes down, you know. And then when you sit down to work, those things influence your decision making and, and your process moving forward. Because everybody carries their notebook around, right? right? Like you have to. Yeah. So how much do you, like I have to talk through my stuff mm -hmm. because I do nonfiction, right? Mm -hmm. So like I'm writing a book about Appalachia mm -hmm. and I was telling folks last night, like I didn't have a frame for it and it's been four, three and a half years and I have like 45,000 words but there's not a frame for it and uh -huh. so yeah. it exists as a thing and then this shit happened. I just, and I was like, I'd rather not have a frame if that was the way, mm -hmm. but now I have a pretty clear frame yeah. about what this story looks like. And so now I have to sit down with people and like make the arguments to them to see what they say back to me so that I know how to shape it. Mm -hmm. Is that, when you're doing fiction and screenplays, are you doing that with people or is it, in t is it you? I have to wait until the first draft is done, yeah. at the very least. Or else what happens? Uh, I st other people's things get messed up in my mind, and I start wondering what my direction is. Yeah. Self-doubt happens. It's so fascinating. I've had this discussion with fiction people that fiction is their thing, mm -hmm. and that, like, it, that, I hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine sitting down to write a fucking thing about, 
you know, an, a sort of narrative about that essentially my book is answering the question why they vote against their self-interest, yeah. right? And the answer is they don't. You don't understand what their self-interest is. Yeah. So now I have to spend 55, 60,000 words explaining through the, the history of my family mm-hmm. who settled Appalachia, who settled the poorest county in the country, why they vote the way they do mm-hmm. and why it actually makes sense, even if it seems like it doesn't. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could do that in my own, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like in my own thing. Well, that's the essential difference, though, between nonfiction and, and fiction is that yours, you are directly interacting with the real world. Right. And you need those perspectives and feedback to fuel the work, whereas the fiction writer, the imaginative writer, is has created the, the world in their own mind. Right. And any intrusion from the outside <laughs> just world in the way. Is, is mixing up. And so right. I think some writers perhaps incorporate things like that when they intrude. I think it depends on the story, too. Yeah. Like the, a big thing about novel writing, screenwriting, depending on the subject matter, is research. Yeah. And, for example, I was just reading Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman the other night. And so he wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Great Waldo Pepper and The Princess Bride and a number of fantastic films. He was like the big Hollywood screenwriter yep. in the 70s and 80s. So he was talking about writing Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he's like, I wrote that script in four weeks. But I thought about it for ten years. <laughs> right. You know, he went right. and did all this research and just looked into right. the, you know, and, and so... It depends on what the fiction writer is going after, but often that interaction with the world that you're talking yeah. about and with other people and all that, that happens before the writing. Yeah. And then to create the imaginative world, I think the writer needs that yeah. space inside their own head. Then, of course, once it's done and you have a first draft done, that's when you really need other people's opinions. Right. But that's different than, right, like that to me is the editing process, right? The, the you, you have the, whereas... Like, I'm interested in the editing process at that point, but the editing for me is happening in the argument, right? Like, yeah. me sort of saying, this is what I think, hearing back from people that argue back, making me clarify the sort of through line for the story. Because the story is the story. Like, my family came and did the things that they did. So, like, none of that changes. It's the author voice around it mm-hmm. that matters, right? And you can do what J.D. Vance did with fucking Hillbilly Elegy and act like he's from 15 minutes from where I grew up, and yeah. he... Is bullshit, right? Like it, the the it it takes a very traditional like Appalachian is hillbilly tact, mm-hmm. and that's easy to do. Yeah. And it's I think it's what you do when you don't have those as a as a nonfiction person. Mm-hmm. The arguments with everybody to sort of figure out like, okay, yeah. what is you privilege your own perspective? Yeah, right. And like I think that's everything that I hate about memoirs. Yeah. Right, is that like I'm going to tell you my thing about my thing and about how my world operates. And I think a really good memoir is this is the thing that happened, and I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. why it matters. Not why I think it matters, but why it matters. Or it, the exploration of that, too. You know, this is the thing that happened, and I'm trying to sort it out, and so here's my, the process of Right, trying. and here's this, and here's this, and we need this sort of... And I think, as growing up, like, I didn't have writing teachers that said like oh no go talk about it mm-hmm. it was always in, in nonfiction. uh well no because i did i did when journalism yes yeah. but like when i was in college mm-hmm. and i took creative writing classes right. like the the learning the, the 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 little bit of structured learning that i had i think i had two or three or four classes was yeah right workshop mm-hmm. right workshop mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a long time to realize like that shit doesn't work for me like the workshop does later but yeah. for Figuring out what it means is mm-hmm. different than mm-hmm. fiction folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So now, like, when you think about your writing today, you think about, like, this, because, like, at least when I think about the stuff I'm doing, there's a box to it. Like, it's about a certain thing. Mm -hmm. Do you have that, or do you just explore different stories? Like, when you sort of look back at the body that you've made and and want to make, Mm -hmm. where are you with that? One of the things that has been kind of fascinating me lately, um, beyond these issues of self-identity and stuff, is this idea of white male power. You know, what is it? This has been like the last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, patriarchy, sexism, racism. You have kids, yeah? Yeah, two, yeah. Yeah, two daughters. Yeah. Which is another thing that really kind of puts that on my radar because I, I think, you know, I see like the Bratz dolls and the cartoons and stuff and the, the sexualizing of of cartoon characters and such even, you know, and on one level I want them to have a healthy attitude about that, but on the other level I don't I don't think that You want them to be kids. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't need messages defining who they should be at, you know, right. six years old. But let them figure that out right. on their own. But I think lately I've been wrestling a lot with the idea of what have we wrought? You know, white patriarchal culture. Here we are kind of at precipice of things. I, I love that, yes, I, that, I, that I, I knew, I called this election to my friends right after he got nominated. Yeah, I said, he's going to win. They're like, come on. you know. And then all the polling, I was like, he's going to win. All my friends are like, don't worry, you know, look, look at 538. Yeah. Well, I was like, he's going to win. You, you don't understand. There's yeah. this, this whole group of people out there that, like I said earlier, are interested in flushing the toilet, and they're not that concerned about the consequences. Yeah. They're not necessarily voting for him as a person. They're voting for the idea of, potentially, what he represents and what he's not. Yeah. I mean, they're voting more for what he's not than, than what he is. Some are, that's that whole mixed bag of what the Republican right. Party is these days. But for me, I, the unifying theme of my work, I, I think, approach-wise, is fusion in that I like to bring in things from all the genres that I work in in certain ways. So my fiction is often very poetic, my poetry is often very narrative, my screenplay is often very poetic and visually written. The people that have read my drafts essentially are like, this. the movie just comes alive in my mind, and I was like, well, that's exactly what (laughs) a good spec script is supposed (laughs) to do. It's supposed to be like you're watching the film. But you gotta be careful because you can't overwrite it, but in the end it comes back to you know, I, I'm just kind of trying to figure out what, if there's simple basic questions that I'm probably making too complicated. Yeah. You know, it, it's, again, it's like, why am I here? What is God? What does our behavior create in terms of consequences toward the other? Where is compassion? Where is humanism? And, you know, what is the core of the fear divides us from each other and keeps us from just kind of reaching out in the ways that we could. So I'm often exploring those those ideas in my work. One of the first poems I ever published um, was Poem to a Boy Serving Soft Time for the State, which came out of, and I'm rubbing the old scar right on my head right now, it was the night of the Mike Tyson fight. This was right as I started my MFA at Western Michigan Mike University. Mike the Buster Douglas? I'm not sure which fight it was. But just one of the Tyson it was, fights. It was in 19, I think, 87 or so. Yeah. Um, actually, no. That'd be, that'd be my 
undergrad, my MFA, that would have been like 1991, 92, when I was at Western. And a bunch of my buddies had come to Kalamazoo to visit me, and we'd go out to this party to watch this Tyson fight. And it was over in 30 seconds. Right. And we're like, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? <laughs> right. We'd been drinking a bunch of beer and all this, and so we head out to go do something. And um, we were walking through this parking lot, and for some reason we kind of split up into two groups and took two separate paths, so we were a bit separated, and there was about five of us, and I ended up kind of being by myself. And this, this black kid comes up to me out of nowhere, and he's got, like, a table leg or a baseball bat in his hand. I'm not really sure what it was, you know? And I had a buzz on, so I'm just kind of like, you know, what's up? And this dude walks up to me and just clocks me in the head with the baseball bat. And, and I, you know, fall down and I jump up, and the first thing I do is I get in his face and I'm just like, you just hit the wrong guy. I'm on your side. You know, I mean, I mean, even in the even in the middle of all this, you know, I'm, I'm just, but it gets even weirder. So, check it, so, and he just turned around and walked away. Right. You know, he wasn't really interested in continuing to kick my ass. Right. I found out later that it was because it was a gang initiation. But meanwhile, so this happens to me. I get blasted in the head. It's going to take five stitches later. I can't find any of my friends. I come around this building. There they are, out in front of this other bar. My other friend had also been attacked. He was hit in the mouth with a baseball bat and had five of his front teeth blasted out, and he got hit in the back of the head. So they got towels on his front and his back. You know, I'm standing there. I'm all bloody. The EMS shows up. They make me lay down and strap me down and all this kind of stuff. They put my buddy on the stretcher. They take us to the hospital. We're in an ER room that's got three beds. I'm in one. They draw the curtain. The middle one is empty. The curtain's drawn. And then there's a third one where my buddy is. Apparently there had been some other racial tension elsewhere in Kalamazoo that night. They, they brought in a black guy who had been in a fight with some other white people and put him in that middle bed. And he's got his girlfriend with him. And he starts talking about, you know, honky this and honky that, and I'm going to kick Whitey's ass and blah, blah, blah. And I'm laying there on this stretcher, strapped down with a brace on my neck, thinking about my buddy who's missing five teeth and has staples in the back of his head, or is about to have staples in the back of his head. And this guy's going on and on and on how he wants to kick white people's asses. And I'm, I'm laying there for a while, like, wow, am I in a Kafka novel? I mean, like, <laughs> what, what the hell's going on here, you know? And after a while, it got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. And I ripped off all the tape. I sat up and ripped that curtain aside. And I got in this guy's face and started giving him a lecture about racial harmony. <laughs> So he's like, look, and I'm like yelling at him, you know, like wagging my finger in his face. Like, like every good racial harmony talk begins. So, yeah, right. That's the most, most appropriate approach to it and, and most effective. But he was, he was shocked. Okay? Right. He wasn't expecting that. And sure. he, his arm is all, would, had been all sure. wrapped up. So he had, and I probably Everybody's having a bad blood night. Blood dripping all down my right. face, you know. And then a nurse comes into the room and, and she essentially says, oh, maybe we should move him. And I was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's move him. Um, and so they, they take him out of there. But it's, so the poem that I wrote is, you know, poem to a boy serving soft time for the state. And it's, it's wrestling with that issue. And, and in a way, it's, it's saying, you know, hey, why did you whack me in the head? But also, I can totally understand why you whacked me in the head. Right. You know, but I'm also on your side, but I can see why you wouldn't think that I'm on your side. Right. And am I really on your side? Right. What, what have I ever done to help you? Right. Beyond just not be bad. Right. You know? Right. Well, this is so, so my lifting partner is a uh, big black dude. He's awesome. I love him. And, uh, you know, I walked in the day after the election and I'd sort of started to broach this conversation with people because 
I'm from this area, working class. Like, my mentor is, like, the baddest black dude that's ever walked the earth. Like, whenever I, he's guided my career. So I kind of knew what the answer was. But I was like, how you doing? And he said, Brad, my life didn't change. They, yeah. they were killing me before. They're going to kill me after. Like, I'm not going to be a different kind of death. Yeah. And I was like, it, like, it's re- like, this is one of those, I mean, I, I've told, like, it feels, at le- even as a writer, like, outside of the politics, as a writer, mm-hmm. this feels like one of those moments that we look back on in 20 years and go, we had a choice. Like, because it, it like, all the black and brown people knew, and a bunch of the people that are like, hey, we're pretty good white people, seem to not know. Kind of knew, but didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And this election seemed to be a, well, now you all know how it feels. Mm-hmm. So now what comes next? And like, as I think about the writing and the stuff that I'm doing with the Appalachia book, like that, like there just becomes this very clear focus to me of like, okay, like this needs to be, it's no longer enough for it to be something in the back of my mind. Yeah. It now, I think, needs to be in the front of my mind mm-hmm. in everything I do because we, we did this, you and me, like, like this is like this is a problem white people got to figure out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just saw, saw Dave Chappelle did Saturday Night Live. But like know? the the first the opening monologue in yeah. the first is basically what he said. Yeah, he's like, I'm just gonna sit back and let y'all figure this out. Right, you're not full of surprises right. anymore. <laughs> and you know, it's so it's it's that's a big thing that's going on in my writing. So wrestling with racism, wrestling with sexism, wrestling with hypocrisy. I I wrote a a, a piece. It was a poem. It was initially a braided poem, so by braided I mean you could read it three different ways. Mm-hmm. There were lines that were in parentheses, there were lines that were not mm-hmm. in parentheses. Mm-hmm. You could read just the lines out of the parentheses, just the line in parentheses, yeah. or both of them together. So this is a poem about um, extraordinary rendition and you know torture of supposed terrorists mm-hmm. by our secret ops arms of the government. And essentially, you know, it's got a woman pregnant in a field picking flowers for the dinner table's bouquet, and a guy hung by his arms in a chain in a dim room with, um, you know, jumper cables attached to his scrotum as they're electrocuting him. And it moves back and forth between the two. And the speaker of the poem is basically saying, what am I going to tell my unborn child about the nature of compassion in this world? (laughs) You know? With, with, with this right. kind of duality that's right. going on. That we know yeah. about. Right. Th- this is not even like, yeah. and I, this is the, you know, one of the things that uh, somebody said to me last night was, um, oh, so we're going to go tell black people and brown people that we want to talk about this more because that's worked, right? Like there comes a certain point where like it's not like, what else do we need to know? Like at this point it really is about mm-hmm. action. Like mm-hmm. in these, I sort of wrestle with the idea of this, uh, what I call it the tightrope. Because I'm writing about Appalachia, right? And, mm-hmm. and in many ways, that is representative of all of the bad things that we're afraid about. Mm-hmm. Like when you mentioned that. But I also think it's important to understand historically why it is the way that it is. Because I don't think that we can... I think that there's a voicelessness in that area. And mm-hmm. I think that that anger and rage comes from voice. I don't actually think that most of it is because they are hateful. Mm-hmm. I think the hate and fear has come because of a voicelessness. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was telling my wife, it's really weird to say, oh, well, to solve these problems, what I'm going to do is go in on a great exploration of white America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I think that's, but it's absolutely right. Because why did all the pollsters get it wrong? Right. 
because they didn't understand what white America's, you know, where their head was Or that, at. like, that portion of, yeah. I mean, and some people were asking me about Michigan and Pennsylvania. I'm like, I don't know that. I'm, that's not uh, that's not the essence of who I am. Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of the day, I get Appalachia. And, like, they hate me. Like, mm-hmm. understand, they hate me more than they hate you because exactly. I'm one of them and I left. Yeah. And I got fancy. Yeah. Um, and so it's not like I have any great, like, I'm writing this as an outsider who mm-hmm. that is the home. But it feels like, you know, in a, in a world of white nationalism, it feels very weird to be like, yeah, I'm going to explore the depth of, yeah. and the pain of white America. Because it's not that, right? It's not, it's explaining, not excusing, yeah. right? Like, it's giving voice, not making that voice. Yeah. Well, and this is so. Then we get into what's the role of art in terms of politics, right? You know, <laughs> right. And, and that's and, and that's like I said, one of the things that I've been wrestling with in a lot of my work lately. Um, to give you another example in terms of the sexism. So one of the things that let's look for the positives that came out of this election. One of the things that came out of this election is that obviously America has a lot of racial tension it needs to deal with. It has a lot of uh, bigotry and sexual tension it needs to deal with, and. It's kind of like the boil has come to the top, and yeah. we're going to maybe have some conversations about this if the Republicans, with their total control, don't crush the ability for us to even have that dialogue. Right. So I, I hope that, you know, it, <laughs> we, we can also say, I don't think any of these Republicans can say anymore that the system doesn't work, the electoral right. system doesn't work. We can take that off the table right. because he lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. Right. If we had flipped the switch on that, I think we'd be having a much different conversation today. Yeah. Right? We'd be talking about banning the Electoral College and things right. like that. And, and, and about the unity that the country is now. Fa- like, if she won, we'd be like, oh, my God, like, we came together and, like, mm-hmm. defeated evil. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. 500,000 votes, you know, yeah. 12,000 votes in four cities. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the difference between total collapse yeah, and... the paradigm shift. <laughs> you know, but I think that... White conservative America, after having eight years of a black president, which look at the racism that oh, brought right. to the surface, right. facing the prospect of a female president, right. I, I can totally understand, considering their point of view, how they're thinking, my country has been taken away from me. Yeah. Right? They're the other. Right. And where is me? Which is ridiculous to even say, right? Like, it's ridiculous to even say, yeah. but like, I, you know, I get it. But we didn't realize that so many people's heads were in that space. Yeah. And now we do. Yeah, and I think that people think of it as, like, localized to Appalachia. Like, I really do think they think it's that, like, that red sort of along the mountains in the mm-hmm. 13 states. And they're like, well, those people... I mean, I've heard it. People who know that that's where I'm from have mm-hmm. said, like, yeah, they're just fucking stupid, Brad. Like, Appalachia's got nothing to give. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be a long four years. Yeah. Um, that's reductive thinking on their part. Yeah, and, and she lost the majority of the white female vote. Yeah, college educated, like so. That's the Michigan and Pittsburgh, and like that's yeah. that sort of suburban, yeah. working class yeah. and sort of middle class. And so I don't think that these people were liking the choice of Trump. Yeah, but there was something about her that yeah. they thought better him than her. Which so does that, that's what, what I'm trying to tease out. When so when you sit down to write now, is this a thing that you're like? beginning to tinker with in terms of like so there's a, not that everything has to be that but it feels today like a lot of it has to be that way yeah. <laughs> I, I think writers now need to wrestle with the issues of the moment which is which are who are who are we as a nation where do we stand in terms of 
You know, so I have kind of like a litmus test for, for people that I've, I've been kicking around since the election if I'm going to begin a conversation with someone. There's three basic questions, you know. Um, do you believe Obama is a secret Muslim who was born in Kenya? Okay, so if you answer yes to that question, all right, I kind of know where your head is at. Do you believe in global warming? If you answer no to that question, I kind of know where your head is at. Do you believe in evolution? If you answer no to that question. So once I've kind of figured out that that's where a person stands, well, then you have to say, well, what kind of conversation can I have with this person? Yeah. You know, this is someone who thinks facts are relative or that facts aren't necessarily accurate or that the sources, I mean, the, the whole... Or that they're, like, that science, like, facts are biased and right. therefore anything you say is right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling that, you know, someone... Like, the whole Breitbart-Bannon thing. What, what I fear is going to happen now, and, and I've been... So have you noticed the covers of the National Enquirer, like when you're in the supermarket and such? They're all very pro-Trump and anti Yeah, well, because he's... Yeah, it's owned right. by one so, of his friends. Um, also, in the past, have you heard the seeds where every now and then Donald Trump or other people would say, you know, the National Enquirer, sometimes they break a legitimate story first. We might laugh at, you know, but there's actually legitimate news coming yeah. out of there. So... They're prepping the groundwork here right. for the delegitimization of sources like the New York Times right. and the Washington Post and for the rising in terms of factual accuracy of tabloid news. Yeah. And now, I mean, I think Bannon's going to have some kind of position. I don't recall what it was. He's a chief he? strategist. Okay. So <coughs> his They put strategy, the white nationalist in charge of chief strategy. So what, what's the beginning of fascism? Step right. one is, you know, delegitimize the systems by which, right. which we get our information and replace that with propaganda. Right. And so that's the first thing that we're going to see happen. But isn't this just the outcome of like Gingrich in the '70s saying burn the Congress down, and Roger Ailes yeah, saying like we're good. like this is this seems to me the natural outcome of 35 years of Republican yep. Yep. sort of far right Republican ideology. Yeah, yeah. And so what's gonna what's interesting now is that. But how do we carve out that space for like with art to reach the people that aren't on that far right? Because I don't like I don't give a shit if they exist as long as they're 20 percent of the population. Yeah. What. Yeah. Well, that's and that's. The, I mean, the, I care, but th like that's the debate of the day, though. Is that, I, like I said, I think there are a lot of rational, very reasonable, good people who still voted for Trump, because it was just not necessarily that they even believed. I mean, Hillary Clinton has had thirty years of you know shit thrown at her, so of course she stinks in their minds. Because right. some of it's going to stick, you know. Right. Regardless of the reality. Right. They made her bake cookies on TV. Like, I told people, like, I'm voting for her just because of that. Right? Just because she said, I'm going to go get a job, and she had to go fucking bake cookies on TV yeah. to make people happy. Yeah. Like, so, th there is, you know, what is it that those reasonable people who voted for Trump, who chose him over her, what is it that, that they actually want? And Will they fall into the trap of being deluded? I mean, I don't think all these people are avid Fox News watchers. I don't. Neither think, do I. I don't think they're you know Breitbart.com yeah. visitors. So or white nationalists. Yeah. And so what I'm wondering <laughs> is like, how will the disinformation campaign work on them? Yeah. Is it going to get to a point where they're going to think, you know, this is they're really kind of playing fast and loose with the right. facts here, and we need to swing things the other way because I think the average American is a pretty reasonable moderate. Right. Right. So the the moderates have probably said. Yeah, we've maybe pushed it too far to the left, and now let's swing it back to the right. And and, and that was the only choice. And that's why I blame the, the you know, the, it's, yeah. this is the Tea Party and the Republic. They created a monster that they didn't even want. Right. And now they've got him elected, and now what I'm thinking is, okay, so you have this 
unprecedented paradigm shift? Are you going to kowtow to this guy? Are you actually going to try to fight him and drag yeah. things back to the center? I bet he gets impeached. That's what people are saying. That's my guess. But I, I bet he's going to get reelected. Yeah. I mean, this is what uh, Bill Lawyers just wrote. He's like, yeah, he's going to win an unprecedented majority. And, but this is why I think the art becomes so important, because if you begin to give voice to the voiceless people, mm-hmm. that, I think that dissipates it, right? Like, and I think that if our art, like, look, I get, um, I guess I'm not talking about all art, because I can't, like, I'm not going to tell, like, the Black Lives Matter folks, like, yeah, that's why you should focus on white America. Like, no, like, that, that, like, that story needs to be told but I think the story of this sort of this this group that we're talking about that mm-hmm. you and I are probably mm-hmm. not uniquely suited to, but like understand mm-hmm. if there's not a voice given to them, I I think that our response because I'm not like I'm not going to be on the front of every protest line. Like yeah. I think the thing that I can do is begin to go into those places and 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 create spaces for those moderate folks to say this is it, this mm-hmm. is this is the thing, and like there is a an honor and a, you know, uh, an understanding and an empathy that comes with that as well. Well, That's it, empathy. Right. It's about facts, information, compassion, empathy, you know, and being able to see through the manipulation of information and get down to the the core truth, you know, which is essentially, I think, what is, I'm a bit of a socialist, humanist, I have to say, you know, but (laughs) what is, what is best for people in general? Right. Why does, it's really, like my wife and I were talking about this, we're talking about sexism and racism and things like that, and you know she likes to make the point that really it's classism. It's all classism. You know, I mean, not she's, all, but she's a Marxist, you yeah. know, and she's just like this is a class war that we're having. That's absolutely. They're filtering it through sex and race, but it's right. actually class. And as we watch the wealth, you know, become unevenly distributed right. and pile up on the top end and get sucked away from the bottom yeah. end and the vacuum of the middle class, I think that these moderates need to kind of eventually realize that you know when do we separate conservative ideology from what is best for the average American citizen. Yeah. You know, and, and so our art, I think, in ways, stories that address compassion in some way that aren't even necessarily overtly political. Right. You know, stories that have characters who are wrestling with, you know, different streams of what is true. And, right. And making choices, you know, art that, art that tells people that it's important to have objective information and to right. be able to make your own decisions. Right. You know, that, that's what seems... So one of the, one of the things that, that I did was uh, a piece called, and this was a year or two ago, um, The Final Neural Firings of the Eternal Starlet. I love the titles of all your pieces. <laughs> like. Well, this was about... Um, <laughs> that is a fun one. Uh, for, for a dark poem, though. Right after Anna Nicole Smith died. Oh, shit. You know, I, I said to myself, wow, she's a prototype. You know, she's the eternal starlet. She's Marilyn Monroe. She's yeah. every starlet who ever was destroyed by the male gaze yeah. and by fame. And, and so I, I kind of wrote this poem that, that plays with this idea of self-love versus, and how that's actually crippled by the pressure of love and worship from others, and you yeah. lose a sense of yourself. And so I, I, I had this footage from this guy that I collaborate with where he'd taken, essentially it was pornography, but he'd, he'd cropped it in such a way that there was nothing obscene in any of the images. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you saw flesh, but none of it was, right. it was like maybe a shoulder right. or an ear or a knee or whatever. Right. Depending right? on where you are. Yeah, yeah but, but the way it was, yeah. but, but you look at it and you're like, okay, I see what's going on there. So it's this weird <laughs> thing where it looks obscene, right. but it's actually not obscene. Right. And he split-screened it up into, I think some of them have like maybe 30-some frame within frame all over the screen. 
but he, he started with one image and then broke it, broke it, broke it, mm -hmm. broke it, broke it, broke it. And then I took that and I started doing screen within screen and I, I went the other way. So I took her from this fragmented, objectified mm -hmm. thing in, and I turned her into the last images of her smiling face, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and so I wanted to humanize her again. That was the whole point, is like to take away the fractalization of objectivity yeah. and put it back together and say, no, man, this is a human being that we're, we're destroying because of our objectification and our sense of everyone trying to take little shreds of this person and make her... But isn't... Want. So this is a thing that appears in lots of your work, though. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. is sort of deconstructing yeah. the whatever view it is that... Right? Like, that's... Yeah. yeah. It's how I first met you, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, when yeah. I think about the visual poetry, like, it's yeah. all either braided poems or all about how do you begin to deal with Sort there's of multiple so much, viewpoints. Right. There's so much coming at us now. Right. Where where's the truth in the inside that? And and I I almost think it's less than what's the truth and do I have I given you the tools to understand that there is a truth inside that. Right? Yeah. Like whatever the truth you find, it's gonna be a little bit different. I mean it's gotta we, be subjective. Yeah, we yeah. can agree that gravity exists, right? Mm -hmm. Uh but depending on where you are in the universe, it operates. It, 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 the pull is different, right? But under, but agreeing that there's a truth there, mm -hmm. right? And then sort of figuring out, okay, within that truth, well, yeah. how can we operate? Like, that seems to be a piece of what your work oh, is yeah. about. Yeah, well, as a journalist, um, you know, <clears throat> facts are what happen. Truth is what we think about what right. happened. You know, and that's the... And every cop will tell you the worst way to figure out what happened is to ask people what they saw. Mm -hmm. Like that's what we know about cognitive science is getting people to tell you what they see. Mm -hmm. The invisible gorilla is like one of my favorite things to show. <laughs> I don't know if you ever have you ever no. go look at the invisible gorilla. Okay. It's a it's a cognitive science test and it will show you how you miss things. Okay. Um, and it's amazing because your body starts to your sort of internalness starts to shut down when things begin to happen and you focus on one thing and you literally miss mm -hmm. very big things around you. Mm -hmm. So telling somebody that you've seen something, whenever somebody's like, Yeah, I saw it, I'm like, Yeah, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. and that's both in the physical world. But also when people say, well, there's not white privilege. I'm like, I understand that you don't think there is. Yeah. Well, you live it, so how can you see it? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not, like, it's that same kind of thing. Like, we were very bad at perceiving mm -hmm. things. We evolved. To anything that we're trying to figure out what's going to kill us. Outside of that, I think we're very bad at figuring out yeah. what those nuances are because we evolved to see big patterns mm -hmm. and not those things so well, and look at now how though and the culture of distraction yeah so here we are big pattern creatures who now have tiny devices that we focus our attention toward that shoot us back outwards in countless different ways you know where's right the, where's the focus and so maybe that is part of what art really needs to think about going forward is you know allowing people to take these multiple streams and find their own sense of objectivity so they can come to conclusions about right. what what it means to be a human being. Right. Because if you see something and I see something and they see something and we share those together, it's within that thing that we can begin to see the Venn diagram of what likely happened yeah. instead of saying this is the thing that happened, right? Like, I think we live in a world right now where everybody's telling you what happened yeah. and we've forgotten that seeing it doesn't mean that it happened yeah. because that's 
right? Like, you need to have all of those things coming at you. And that's why I think the thing that has missed, at least for me, is that there, I, asked the, I asked these artists last night, what's the great working class white literature that you read? Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, I'm like, right, right, no, right. This is the answer, right? Like, there isn't any because you think that that place is a desolate wasteland of stupidity. Mm-hmm. Go to looking at Appalachia and the Roger Mays photography project. Where he's having Appalachians like take photos of where they're at, and now they're submitting. Like there is actually a great deal of art coming out of that area. But if yeah. your response is like, "Oh well, I've, I don't, I don't really know." Have you ever read Donald Ray Pollock? Mm-mm. Yeah, he's from that. He's from deep South Ohio, yeah. Knockem Stiff, Ohio, <laughs> and uh, he collects short stories and a novel, and um, he has that voice. It's those people. Yeah. Also, like Breeze Pancake. You ever read <laughs> Breeze Pancake? So he's out of West Virginia, uh-huh. and he's much earlier. Uh, Pollock is contemporary, but Caprice Pancake, I believe it was the 80s. He killed himself relatively young. He only put out one collection of short stories. But they're, they're these really kind of brilliant, compassionate, thoughtful stories that come out of that. Right. And what he does is he totally humanizes these people. Right. And he, he shows their, what, what would the outsider would see as, oh, they're, they're white trash, right. you know, they're ignorant. Right. And he minds the, the deep and specific intelligence that right. these people have. It's explain, not excuse. Yeah. Like, you know, the line is always, I have to acknowledge the fact that, like, when I'm reading the history of Appalachia, like, there are no black people there because they were slaves and killed and mm-hmm. that, so they're not part of that. So, that, like, you have to acknowledge that. Like, there can't be this, like, Oh, like the the hardworking, like good people of Appalachia. There are those people, but it's within this larger context, and all of those things swirling together. Mm-hmm. The, you know the Melungeons, yeah. Right. So the Melungeons uh, are uh, a genetically distinct group of people. Yeah. Um, they can't tell where they came from anymore. It's uh, uh, slaves. Uh, uh, whites and American Indians, and yeah. they lived in such isolation that yeah. they sort of just forged their own. Were they living on an island? Off no, the they were. Of... No, they were living. They're living on, in in Appalachia, in Appalachia, but in the mountains. Right. And they have they've intermixed so much that they've become genetically. Uh, you can't tell where they came from. Okay. Um, and so, like, there are these moments of this, like, okay, so. That's a really fascinating story. Yeah. And it's also a really fascinating metaphor for that. Yeah. Like, but you have to be from there to know really what that story is. Like, mm-hmm. Otherwise, people are like, what the hell is the Melungeon? So yeah. it's that kind of voicelessness, I yeah. think, about all of it that is... It's just really interesting. Um, we've been talking for a long time. This is great. Thank you for stopping by today. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to... Sit here and talk with you. I wish I had the chance to do it more. <laughs> and then we'll do it again in seven years. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It only took us seven years. <laughs>
Play Festival uh, the second week of April. Circle City New Play Fest. During the Fringe Fest coming up in a few months, we are sponsoring a play there by Casey Ross, who you've heard on the program before. Um, And we have our new call to action for any Indiana writer or people that are writing about Indiana. Um, We have a lot of stuff going on. Our November retreat, uh, we still have a couple spots left into that. So if you're interested in any of those things, by all means, like hop on the website, send us a note, like take a look around, see what's up. Uh, Otherwise, we will see you around the internet. Have a great day. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! (laughs) Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.